Thanks, Adam. Good morning, everybody. August of 1914 marked the declarations of war, which commenced the Great War known as World War I. During the war and used more extensively afterward, the phrase total war emerged. And this phrase was used to describe the all-encompassing clash of entire societies. The stakes were total, hence the phrase total war. It was not about compromise, but about total victory or total defeat. Total war meant that every person and facet of society was mobilized for this war, which included entire economies, political establishments, and the intellectual life of the society. All of their passions, feelings, emotions, and convictions of the entire population. The Bible is a total war. There is no other narrative, no other story, no other reality than the Bible. It's about two kingdoms and only two kingdoms. It's about one rightful king and an opposing kingdom that seeks to supplant him. It's easy for us to look at the Bible and try to draw out maybe some helpful tips for our life or to help us behave better when in fact what it is is the reality. The reality of what is true. And you are in that story. Everyone is in that story and your eternity, your eternity is based upon how you relate to the king of that story. Beloved, take eternal refuge in the victory of our Savior King. Let's turn to Luke chapter 13, verse 31 through 35. Luke chapter 13, verse 31 through 35. <clears throat> It says this in the CSB. At that time, some Pharisees came and told him, go, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go tell that fox, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Yet it is necessary that I travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the true king who has sole authority to judge and to save. Prior to our passage, Jesus had just finished exhorting a crowd to not focus on how many are saved. The question was, will there be few? The question wasn't, Jesus' Jesus's response wasn't about how many, but are you included in that? Jesus established himself as the homeowner, the one with complete authority over the house who knows the ones who are his and who has shut out of the house those who are not. Jesus sobered the crowd with a revelation that it's not about their lineage. It's not about their proximity to him. It's not about their knowing about him, as Scott said last week. 
Instead, it's about believing and submitting to the king. That narrow door we see in chapter 13 is the door of repentance. Jesus expressed an urgency to the crowd to exert themselves to respond to the words and work of the king before it's too late. There is a coming judgment and the door will be shut. And so Jesus' urgency is, are you responding to who I am, to what I'm saying? This is that narrow door. Our passage continues from this setting, and so I want us to keep this context, this context of what it is for Jesus to be the authoritative homeowner and what it is to see this in light of a coming judgment. The continuity occurs with the phrase, at that time, that we see in the CSB. So some Pharisees followed this up with a statement to Jesus about Herod wanting to kill him and that Jesus should leave. Now, the motivation of the Pharisees is not mentioned. We often think Pharisees, well, they're, they're the, the self-righteous, they're the antagonists, um, but there's no, motivation, no, no motivating factor listed here that Luke mentions. But we know what's true is that Herod's threat is real. Herod is the one who imprisoned John the Baptist and who killed him. What this question implies, given the previous section, is really who has authority? over Jerusalem. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus, do you really have authority over Jerusalem? Do you really have authority as the homeowner? Do you really have the authority to judge and to shut out in eternity? Jesus' response, go tell that fox. Now that insult kind of gets lost on us. We typically don't use that as an insult. Now, it's not, not as though Jesus is racking his brain for a comeback, which is often my case. Oh, yeah? Well, you tell that fox. He's, he's intentional with that word. In Greek literature, it's often, or it can be used as somebody who is sly, and, and we use that connotation today as well. More often, it's used as somebody that is powerless, somebody that is worthless. It is an insult And what it is, is establishing that Jesus is the one with all authority. He follows it up after putting Herod in his place with that statement by saying, look, tell Herod, behold, that's an imperative command. Tell him to behold what I'm doing, casting out demons and healing, really giving a summary statement of his ministry Jesus declares in that statement his authority as the Messiah to bring the kingdom of God in place of the kingdom of Satan and of sin. It's not even about Herod. Jesus' authority as king to establish the kingdom of God is, is true and it's real and it's coming. The last phrase in verse 32 Jesus declares, on the third day, I will complete my work. That's the Greek word teleao, which can be translated as complete or perfect my work. What this means is that it will be ultimate and final. That he's prophetically referencing to his rising from the dead on the third day. That in that will be his final victory over the kingdom of darkness and sin. Again, It's not about Herod. It's going to happen. 
And in fact, it follows up with the phrase, yet it is necessary, a phrase used in the Gospel of Luke to talk about divine necessity, the unstoppable work of God. And we sang about that this morning. It is going to happen. Luke uses the word fulfilled often when talking about uh, Old Testament references, that Jesus fulfilled it. And that word fulfilled is indicative of the the movement of God within history that cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. It doesn't matter who's in a ruling power. God will establish his kingdom and it will happen through Jesus and it's going to happen in Jerusalem and it's going to happen through his death and it's going to happen through his resurrection. And Jesus says, this process is going to move forward. There was no other contender for the king of the universe, which means that Jesus has the sole authority to judge, but also to save. British politician and historian Lord Acton wrote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. That's not encouraging. It is one thing to have a king with absolute authority. It is another to have a merciful king with absolute authority. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the true king who wants to save you. Let's read verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Pause there. There is a stark contrast presented in this verse. In verse 31 above, it states that Herod wants to kill Jesus. The Greek word there is the word thelo. Jesus, however, in verse 34, wants to gather the children of Jerusalem. Again, the verse, or the word thelo. The king in Jerusalem seeks to protect his own rule and exalt himself so much so that he wants to kill the one that God has sent to save his people. The true king, however, coming to Jerusalem, wants to save his people. What a contrast. Now, gathering under the wings is imagery that we see in the Old Testament to talk about Yahweh's saving work for Israel. Two verses you can write down. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11 to 12, and Psalm chapter 17, verse 6 through 8. In Deuteronomy, it says, He, Yahweh, found him, Israel, in a desolate land, in a barren, howling wilderness. He surrounded him, cared for him, and protected him as the pupil of his eye. He watches over his nest like an eagle and hovers over his young. He spreads his wings, catches him, and carries him on his feathers. David picks up this Exodus theme in Psalm chapter 17. I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love. Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who treat me violently my deadly enemies who surround me. By Jesus declaring this desire to gather under his wings, Jesus shows himself to be Yahweh of the Old Testament in the flesh. This is a first-person statement 
Jerusalem, the one that kills the ones sent to them. How I have wanted to gather you. Since the choosing of Abraham and the moving of the story of God's chosen people, there is the constant pursuit of a loving, redeeming God and the constant rejection of him as their king. The heart of God wants to gather. He is a king who uses his authority to be a savior. He has ultimate authority, but also ultimate love. I have struggled with believing that God wants me. I've actually struggled most of my life believing that I'm wanted. My unconscious thought is that I start on the outside, and by performing right, I can work my way in acceptability, a sense of worth, a sense of belonging, that it's dependent on me. The clearest manifestation of this growing up, while there were many of that insecurity, occurred with playing games. If I would lose a board game or if I would make a mistake in soccer, it was absolutely devastating. Now, this isn't like, oh, he's competitive and he really wants to do well and didn't, so he's disappointed. This is like, whoa, that kid is struggling with a sense of worth. It's the kind of response when you lose a chess game and you swipe all the pieces off the board. That was me. When you make a simple mistake and you cry because the pain of failure means a pain of rejection. It means the pain of not having worth, not having belonging because you didn't measure up. This belief carried forward even after being saved. When I was working at a Bible school in Uganda, I attended a ministry retreat at a place called Mutomoyoni, outside of Jinja. And that means a river in the heart in Swahili. It was a beautiful place on the Nile River. And one of the activities during this retreat was that we were asked to go into the garden area with a mat and ask God a question that we wanted the Lord to encounter us about over the course of the retreat. So I went into the garden. It was a beautiful area. I laid down, I closed my eyes, and I couldn't think of a question that I wanted to ask God. There was just nothing that surfaced. And I laid down there just for a couple of minutes. And then I sensed the Lord place a question in my heart. It was so clear, and it struck me so deeply. I started to weep. I couldn't even get it out. I couldn't verbalize that question to God. It was like he reached down into my soul that I would ask what I most needed to know in that time. And the question was, do you want me? God, do you want me? Am I desired by you? The Lord ministered to my heart on that weekend, and this verse does the same. Let it be known to your soul today He wants to save you. He wants you. We can often disqualify ourselves by our own performance. We can try to bolster our image up by our great deeds, our Facebook profiles, our Instagram pictures. We can bolster a sense of worth and of belonging when all the while deep down in our souls what we need is for God to say, I want you. For the king 
of the universe, for the creator of your life to say, I want you. The privilege of preaching is that I get to take this word and I get to proclaim it to your hearts. I get to proclaim it to my heart so that all thoughts that are in competition with this get to be subverted to the truth of God's word. So when we carry out our day-to-day work, when we carry out our day-to-day activity, I can remember God wants me. I don't feel that, but it's true. God wants me. This passage shows that Jesus wants to save. So we need to ask the question, what do you need saving from? Look at the last part of verse 34. It says, but you were not willing. This is the other stark contrast. I'm sorry, back up. You need to be saved from God's coming judgment. This is the other stark contrast in our section of scripture. Jesus wants, the Greek word thelo, to gather the people of Jerusalem. But the people of Jerusalem do not want him. The CSB renders that phrase, but you were not willing. That is also the Greek word thelo. Instead, if we move forward in the story, what they want is to kill Jesus. Luke records later that those that were in front of Pilate demanding the crucifixion of Jesus were the chief priests, the leaders, and the people. This is the great tragedy and great rebellion of humanity. The king comes to save, and instead of receiving that salvation, they kill the king. It is the clearest picture of our sinfulness. We don't want God. And not only that, but we actively stand against his rule. So what do you need saving from? Romans chapter 1, verse 28 through 32 says this. And because they did not think it worthwhile to know God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Ouch. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. If you can't find yourself in that list, you need to look a little harder. Disobedient to parents? Don't raise your hands. Paul corners us. There's no way out. Our passage shows that there is only one true house, one true kingdom, and one true king. And this king is worthy of all thanks, all glory, and all honor. Any attempt to make him out to be less than what he is is a lie, and it is an offense worthy of death. I want to back up as we talk about sin. We can often think about it in human terms. Because in our court systems, we have variations of punishments. So we have, on the one end, the death sentence for the worst possible uh, offense, then maybe if you get a speeding ticket, you might get a fine. Now, if I'm speeding and the officer says, 
you're going to go to the lethal injection chair next Wednesday. I would probably ask why. Be a little concerning of our justice system. That's because in our heads, we think, well, this is not that bad. That is really bad. And we have a gradient of punishment. So I want us to take that thought and not apply that to the Bible and think, well, God, I haven't sinned that bad. Like, disobedient to parents is worthy of death? How could that be? Because we stand in our disobedience to parents and we declare, God, your ways are wrong and my ways are right. Your establishment of authority is wrong. We posture ourselves towards the eternally glorious God and say, I don't want you as king. And an eternally glorious God is just to give an eternal condemnation. Judgment looms for all humanity. Look at the beginning of verse 35. See, your house is abandoned to you. This is a statement of judgment. The NASB says, behold, your house is left to you desolate. God spoke in the book of Jeremiah 12, verse 7. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. This is the judgment pronounced upon Israel. Later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will speak about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It is left to her enemies and ultimately points to the eternal condition and eternal destruction of the persons of Israel. Now maybe you're thinking, well, that's for Jerusalem. That's not for me. No, Paul incorporates all of us together, Jew and Gentile. In Romans 3, what then? Are we, the Jews, any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that is Jews and Gentile, are all under sin. That's all of us. You need saving from a heart that wants victory over the king. You want your own kingdom. You need saving from a self-centered, self-glorifying, self-pleasing, self-sufficient, self-deceiving, and self-righteous heart, just to name a few things. You need saving. And the good news is, Jesus wants to do that. Jesus has the authority to save you. He wants to save you, and you need saving. So what now? Beloved, Take eternal refuge in Jesus. Look at the end of verse 35. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is a narrow door statement given to the people of Jerusalem. Luke is not recording this as a precursor to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Luke writes that it's the disciples in that moment. In Luke 19, the disciples are joyfully praising God, and it's the same quote, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees' response is to rebuke the disciples. So we know that this isn't pointing forward to that. 
Instead, Luke carries forward a theme throughout his gospel on seeing. To rightly see Jesus is to understand and align oneself with God's purpose to establish his kingdom through Jesus. For example, near the beginning of the gospel of Luke, Simeon holds up Jesus while in the temple and says, Now, Master, Lord, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Later in Luke 8, Jesus' immediate family wanted to gain access to him, but was prevented by a large crowd. Chapter 8, verse 20 says, And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, wishing, wanting, Greek word thelo, to see you, the same word for see that we have in our passage. And Jesus answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. It's interesting that this last passage correlates to the house of God theme that carries forward from last week to this week. There is only one household and one master of the household. Only those who rightly see Jesus by hearing and doing his word are a part of his household. This is the call to repentance that we see at the beginning of chapter 13. Repent. Turn. And look upon him. Therefore, for Jesus to understand, for excuse me, for Jerusalem to understand and align themselves with God's mission and story of salvation, they must bless the one whom God has sent. And this is the cry of the repentant heart. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, blessing God is a unique expression in Scripture. We can understand the greater blessing, the lesser. We talk about God's blessings or somebody blessed another, one who has gives to one who hasn't or who has not. So let's read John Piper and get theologically more confused. John Piper says this, if God is the primal and inexhaustible blesser, then he must be above all others in a blessed state. The fullness and source of all blessing. If this is so, then a most natural burst of praise would be, you are blessed. That this recognition and joyful exclamation of God's blessedness should then be described as blessing God, and it's not unusual. Other analogies, though not exact, would be our expressions like, I magnify the Lord, or let us exalt his name. Both of these expressions properly recognize and give joyful expression to God's magnificence and his exalted status. They do not mean that we make God larger or higher. So to bless God means to recognize his great richness, strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing it. We are called by Jesus through his word to take eternal refuge in him. Us blessing him means that we posture our hearts, turning away from the sin that marked us as wanting our own kingdom to look and say, no, that's the true kingdom and the true king. It means we align our entire lives around him, turning from our self-centered, self-glorifying, self-pleasing, self-sufficient, self-deceiving, self-righteous lives and find our life on his terms. Acknowledging our rebellion and accepting the work of him who perished outside of Jerusalem on our behalf. Now, two 
aspects of this I want to talk about. One is taking refuge in him. It starts with our cry of salvation. That when we have understanding of our sin, understanding of our rebellion, and understanding of Jesus' gracious work, we get to call on the name of the Lord. It enters us in taking refuge to the King. And that is something we get to live our lives within. It is a day-by-day refuge that we take underneath his glory and his blessing and his protection and his grace. That is what we need. We need to know that we are wanted by God, loved by God, saved by God, cared for by God, sustained by God, that he will glorify himself in our lives, that he is gracious and compassionate, that he leads us, that he's a shepherd, that we are a son, that we are his bride. This is what it is for us to take refuge in him day after day. That is the glory of what it is for us to be called the redeemed. How magnificent is that? That we have a day-by-day refuge in the Son. That our cry every day is, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because I belong to him. Because he did it. He unstoppably established salvation for me. He did it. And I live my life reflecting his image and his glory, taking refuge in him. But one thing that we can often miss, and this happens in an affluent, comfortable culture, is we can forget about eternity. In fact, when we talk about salvation biblically, it is oriented towards we're being saved from the coming judgment And that that kingdom, that kingdom is coming from eternity now. And we're headed in that direction. And so for us to take eternal refuge in God means that the Lord produces in our hearts a growing longing for eternity. I have to be honest with you. This evades often my thoughts and my feelings. A very unfortunate thing happened a couple years ago as I discovered Facebook Marketplace where I have access to a couple million people who are selling things typically for pretty cheap prices. And it turns into a self-gratifying pursuit of more, of better, of improving, of building my kingdom. And what it does is it pulls my heart away from thinking about eternity. We can often think that what we need most is a better house, a cleaner house, better landscaping, a better job, more money, maybe a good night's sleep, maybe a great vacation. When what we really need is a savior that we take eternal refuge in and look for the glory of his coming kingdom. That our heart's longing would be the day when we see him face to face. Beloved, that is a part of this cry that we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because that's my good. American culture will pursue your heart. It will pursue your affections. 
for you to give yourself over to the pleasures of this life, for the stresses and worries of this life. And Jesus, through his word, encounters your heart and says, do you know the end of the story? Do you know where you're headed and what you're living for? And as we take refuge in his finished work, day by day, I remind myself, that's where we're headed. I need to remind my family, that's where we're headed. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to take communion together.